Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami Welcome to Venerable Rajiro. Welcome to Tisara, your first Patimokha here. Nice to have you here. And Arjun Sileko, welcome. Back for a second time. Richard, welcome back. Pat, welcome. Um, I've been thinking all year about the uh, Manti Kumaras uh, booklet on, on Jhana. Quite stimulating, really. So just consider the sort of various factors that we engage in in meditation. Um, classically, in a, in a classical Buddhist country, classical sense, you'd always begin by uh, paying homage. In all our, all our ceremonies, we begin by paying homage. And, you know, what's, what's that about? Well, it's a ritual, and it can be simply perform because that's what we do but if you contemplate it and you contemplate both the being of the Buddha and then the refuge of Buddha what that might mean um, it, it is an act of faith and, and and an act of faith would be that I mean you have your own way of thinking about it but the way I would think about it would be that uh, there was a being who got enlightened and then he shared that. So, and he was a human. And he said that human beings have this possibility. So, um, that's a, a kind of very, very optimistic uh, devotional statement, I would say. Because it's saying this is possible. This deep, deep sense of uh, realization and liberty uh, is, is possible in the human heart. And I would think that that would be a necessary part of any meditative exercise, because if you're not optimistic, you think, oh, I can't meditate. Okay, better shovel the snow. <laughs> Is it good? Um, so so when, when, we do, when we do these rituals, see if you can uh, really enliven it. Like, what am I saying, Namo Tassa? What's that really about? And what is, what is faith? And, and faith isn't the same as belief. It's not like you kind of have to believe in some kind of doctrinal definition of the Buddha as a historical being or transcendent nature, whatever. It, it's actually like this, this kind of trust in the heart that, that this, the fact that we're here means there's a tremendous amount of goodness in our lives. The fact that we can hear this teaching, the fact that we can sit together like this and, and contemplate and meditate is, is, is hugely wholesome and, and hugely optimistic, I would say. So, that's how I read it. And, and then, you know, then you can, you can take it further if you want. You can contemplate the qualities of the Buddha and so on to bring up those strong devotional qualities if, if that's your nature. Say something like, and Amr Siri from his culture, he does that very, very easily. We don't. 
Uh, we don't have most of us, maybe some mostly. But even if you don't have a kind of bhakti quality to your makeup, to your personality, there is faith, there is trust, there is optimism. These are normal parts of a healthy of a healthy mind. So that that's one one consideration when we chant these opening homages, and then again always the the refuges that um, when we begin any any uh, any ceremony any recitation, it's always reflections on Buddha Dharma Sangha Tisarana, and and and. The awake mind, that's so important. The awake mind. What is the awake mind? You're always remembering that awakening. And that's not doctrinal. And that's not historical. And that's not cultural. A Christian can be awake in a... A Sufi master can be awake and someone shoveling the snow can be awake. So that that awake quality, uh, we're always... We're always returning to that, awakening to the way things are. So just got kind of going outside and uh, hitting the snowscape, and the body crunches up and saying, "Oh, awaken to the feeling of snow." So then the body opens. Oh, snow's like that. We're doing this all the time, all the time, in in whatever circumstance we're in. And the dharma is the way it is. Like this is like snow's like this, cold is like this. Wet is like that. It's like this. And, and, and that, that is always the establishment of, of reality, of truth, I would say, of truth. Not truth, again, as a position, like an intellectual position, but as, as an existential experience. And in Sangha, we're always reminded of that, and that's both the, you know, that we, that we do live as community, the, these rules that we live by, and these relationships that we have, they're very important because they carry us. They carry us through our ups and downs. So when, when someone is down, another person's up, and, and, and their energy carries them, and the form carries us, and, and the requirement to conform actually carries us past the egotism of, of the human mind. Um, so it's not a, you know, the communal sangha life is not a narcissistic life. It's not about me and my mind. You know my special talents or, or my special views and opinions. You know, I should think that narcissism is probably the most difficult quality to get past in the whole life. Self disparagement is very good. Most of us come to this because we have a healthy sense of self disparagement. Self disparagement can go, you know, go go wrong very badly into like. Um, crippling self-criticism, but, but some sense of, of um, things aren't quite right, I'm not perfect, and there is work to do, is, is very, very healthy. Uh, whereas, like a narcissistic personality, it's difficult, because everything is referred from some sense of personal perfection and personal um, rightness. And the Sangha is also just the, the, is the community that we bounce off each other, we mirror each other. And then also it's just those qualities of morality, super morality, renunciation, aspiration, and um, 
energy, energy, constantly bring forth the, the qualities of a samana. And these are, these are constantly repeated because this is what a, a culture can offer. Like a monastic culture offers that repetition of form so that we remember. So that we're constantly remembering, recollecting. This is a gift. Now, if one is looking for some kind of excitement and interest, then of course you just kind of redesign it all the time. You get a new, maybe we get new, maybe by, you know, we get robes like the color of Richard's trousers, maybe it'd be really cool, huh? <laughs> we all walk around like firemen. And then the following year we'd have to get another, you know, and go on. But that's not, this, that's not this life is about. It isn't about, um, innovative <laughs> rogue styles, right? Or, or, or creativity in that way. It can be creative in terms of you know, making things, but, but our life is very conservative. Um, not ideologically, I would say, but socially it's very conservative because we conserve um, certain values and certain tones of aspiration by doing this, by coming together. I think all of us have seen, you go you go away somewhere to family or on a trip somewhere and you come back and you see the robe. They're very powerful, isn't it? Kind of, you see the robe, oh yeah, that's a samana. That's someone who is aspiring to Nibbana. That's someone who has renunciant principles in their life. That's someone who keeps the rules, keeps the patimoka. Uh, and like Ajahn Chah would say, you know, when I mean, he was 60-ish or whatever, he said, what do you think I keep the rules? Do you think if I, if I didn't keep the rules, I'd kind of lose the plot and take off with the money from the monastery? He said, no, I keep the rules so that you keep the rules. I keep the rules for you. And so the, the community always is, 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 we're not just like blind rule keepers, but we are, we are sensing there's a kind of integrity and, 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 uh, mm, solidness when, when, when we have this common agreement of how we're going to live together. And we keep to it. We keep to it again and again. Now that can become overly fussy. It can become so fussy it's just totally anal. <laughs> or it can become like critical of others because they don't keep the rules. But that's, of course, not the spirit at all. It was a personal... Uh, a personal... Um, Integrity, rather than a, an attachment to rules, Silapita Paramasa. So it, the idea of it is that it's beautiful. Rajan Chak taught a lot that way. Bring beauty, you know, beauty into this lifestyle. Bring beauty into the keeping of rules. It's odd, isn't it? How do you do it beautifully, gracefully, uh, without uh, with, with uh, kind of clarity? So these, these are the foundations, you know, and we hear this again and again and again, but they are profound. They are very profound. Usually classically also that, that when, when uh, we do meditation, usually metta bhavana is a very important practice of, of well-being and um, compassion, that we bring those to, to the heart. Because we are emotional beings, we are heart beings, and if if our if our meditation is just some kind of dry attempt to control the mind, that won't work. Because we have heart, 
and, and, and an emotionally rich heart is filled with goodwill. And that richness is a kind of um, energy which really carries you, carries you in your meditation, in your life. Without that richness, um, the mind usually reverts to various kind of critical forms, self-criticism of others, bitterness and, and uh, sadness and, and all those things. So, so the metta bhavana has always been a, a foundation for uh, any kind of wholesome meditation. It doesn't have to be formulaic. It can be just expressions of gratitude, just bringing forth gratitude to Lampo Samir or whatever, or to the lay people, or it can be memories of, 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 of beauty and gratitude, or whatever you want. Or you can do it classically with the lists of people. But how you do it, isn't so much important as that you, that you do it, that you, you get the tone in the heart of goodwill. Because goodwill then allows you into, to enter into the meditation that you're doing with a wholesome attitude. Without goodwill, then the mind always will be either caught in doubt or caught in ill will or, or whatever. So these are, these are in, in classical Buddhism, these are the foundations for uh, meditation. So there's already a lot there, isn't there? There's a lot. There's quite a quite a uh, mature human being who who has already that in place and remembers to keep it in place. And of course, we we talk about the hindrances, kind of energies where the energy system that we experience, or the mind, like some some people just they they, they just don't know how to get a dullness. They just kind of they just Always, they don't know. They don't know the energy, how to raise energy, uh, or the restlessness. They can't stop. Uh, they can't just sit down and do nothing, and be and be and be. And so, these person personally, we have to figure out what is what is right vitality in in a meditative life or in a meditative experience. What is what is it about the vitality of of the mind that we need to sustain? For ourselves, so that we can begin to calm the mind, uh, and that's different for each person, and it's different for each time. An understanding of your spinal column, an understanding of your hara, an understanding of how uh, energy affects the spine, how it affects the posture, how to use the posture, how to use different postures, uh, is all part of the learning of, of energy. Uh, and so, again, how you do that, I, I, I don't know, but obviously vitality is important. So, so it's a kind of question, so what is right vitality, shall we say? And then the hindrances are, are just generally described as just dullness or restlessness. And those are very, very uh, general categories. And then the, and then the tendency to either uh, greed or aversion. So that could be trying to attain to something or trying to get rid of something. It's classic. You're trying to get some experience you had before or you're trying to get rid of the thoughts in your mind or you're trying to gain some kind of experience that you've read in a book uh, or you, you just can't, can't abide by a pain in your body. You want to get rid of that. So the pushing away and the holding on to, the aversion, the greed, those have to be understood in doubt. Doubt is the constant thinking, constant thinking, constant thinking, just constantly thinking, trying to figure stuff out. Um, 
And doubt is good, that doubt can be good, nothing wrong with doubt, but the mind just does not know how to give up the endless analysis and questioning is a mind which can be peaceful. So then you have this word jhana, and, and so that's how we started this talk from Bhante Kumara's um, interesting booklet. And, and so as you know, many of us have read that recently, I think. And just to remind you, he's saying that from his take on it, that the word jhana has a sutta reference and a visuddhimagga reference. And the visuddhimagga reference is that it's absorption, and the sutta reference is that it is meditation. So he calls it Sutta Jhana and Visuddhimagga Jhana. And then within that you get this word Ekigata, and which in the Visuddhimagga is one-pointed, and in the suttas he suggests it's one-placedness. The mind is composed. And, and so from that analysis, um, he's saying that Perhaps the word for samasamadhi as right concentration isn't a good word. Perhaps it would be better to use it as right composure or, or a sense of collectedness. And I find that quite truthful in t- to my own experience. Because for me, if I concentrate, like if I'm working in a workshop and I'm working with the router, say, and I'm trying to make a, a mortise, you know, two by four or something, I'm really concentrated on that machine, on the wood, on, on how the machine is moving, how my hands are moving, how far I have to move the, uh, the cutter to get the right uh, cutting and so on. And so it's very, very, it's very concentrated, but it's all about the object. Right? Now, if, if our aspiration is to the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unformed. All of that cannot be an object. It can't be something that we hold on to. Whereas the composure of the mind, say if we use the, so the, the, the um, if we use like a language like for some asamadhi, this, that like compose your mind, collect your mind. Now that we can do in all circumstances. That's not concentration. So you can be having a, a shower and you see your mind's kind of all over the place, you know, just compose, collect your attention on having a shower. But if you say, you know, right concentration is concentrating on the shower, what are you going to concentrate on? Soap? <laughs> the bubbles? Right? So kind of, then you get confused, because then you're in the shower, okay, I'm going to concentrate. But if you, if you say, no, no, you compose the mind, collect, collect your attention, and you can say you're, you know, you're, you're thinking about what you can do tomorrow, or some disagreement you have with another monk, or and the mind scattered, and then you, know, you collect the mind. To me, that makes a lot more sense. Otherwise, if it's just concentration, it seems somehow samadhi. You can do it 24/7. So that means one one eighth of the eightfold path. You can't implement all the time. Doesn't make sense to me. You can like just um, someone could be. Uh, suffering from grief. And someone on retreat was grieving the loss of their husband. You can see how you tell them, no, just concentrate on your breath. No, come on. But you could say you could be composed with the experience of grief. You could do that. You could be composed, collected 
with the experience of grief. So it seems to me that's much more applicable in all in all um, in all situations. So like like if we talk like in ter- language is important, isn't it? I don't know for me it is because I talk a lot of these things. But but say if you say mindfulness of the breath, that's one way. I like mindfulness with the breath because that's more about my mind than the breath. If I say mindfulness or awareness with grief, that's about the mind rather than the grief. Or mindfulness uh, with taking a shower. So that begin, begins, you can begin to see that, that that's applicable all the time. All the time, wherever you are, right? Makes a lot of sense to me. So, for you to consider, so rather than ekikata being one point in this, what if it's one place in this? And, and from the Chinese lady that I met from Beijing that said she said that was from the Agamas that that's the way she's always read it um, that it's one placedness. So then you have like in the in the in those jhana factors. So if we take the the uh, sutta um, possibility of this word jhana being meditation, which be, which is dhyana, which is zen, which is chan, right? Same word used throughout. Um, then you have a way of considering those five factors, the jhana factors, in a different way. So if you take vitaka vijara, well, you can see that it's about thought, huh? and you can see that a lot of problem meditation is about thinking too much or thinking wrongly. So vitaka vijara must be something about thinking rightly. So. And we talk about it must be part of the method, I should think. So, how do you think right? You know, how do you think in order to compose and collect the mind? Now, if you don't pay attention to thought and you just ramble on, then of course that's not meditation. That's ramble, rambling. Um, so we and, the, and we pay attention to our thinking, don't we? You know what. What's the mood? What 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 are the think? What's the thinking indicating? Oh, I feel annoyed, or I'm worried about something, or whatever. Oh, oh. And then then you get a sense of the mood of the mind, and then composure with worry. You know, composure with a, a memory of of being hurt or whatever. Composure with that, and so that you you start to use thought in a skillful way, not just get rid of it, but you kind of diagnose the unskillful thinking, see where it's coming from, and then you say, yeah, sadness feels this way. So my friend is grieving the loss of her husband, and um, there's a lot of tears and sadness, and, and then she says, yeah, and composure with. So there's still the story and narrative going on, but she brings it back, and so she doesn't get lost in it. So we talk of Jara, and you can see as you meditate, that falls away. You see, the mind begins to not think. doesn't need to think. You don't need to put inputs. The mind just becomes more and more silent. Or you, you need to put a little bit in. You just can say, like, uh, uh, relax, or, or nowhere to go, or nothing to do. And these are very subtle kind of suggestions, which are very powerful and very useful, depending on what's going on in your meditation. So then you have the ekagata, so if you use that as one place in this, then you have piti and sukha, you know, these are aspects of happiness. 
So usually people read that, they say, well, that's what you get. I'm going to do this meditation, I'm going to get this jhana, and I'm going to be happy. Yeah, maybe. But what if it's method? Like the other three are method. Shouldn't those two be method too? So if it's method, and this isn't like, you don't have to believe me, it's just like a consideration, right? What, What would happiness as method be? How do you do happiness? Which sounds weird. No, I don't. I want happiness. I don't do happiness. But is that true? You, you can do happiness. How do you do happiness? Well, one thing you stop doing unhappiness. <laughs> right. So if your mind is just miserably criticizing everyone all the time, don't do it. That's kind of doing happiness, isn't it? Or if you're just criticizing yourself all the time, don't do it. Don't go there. And that's Vitaka Vijara, and that's doing happiness. So, don't do that which is unhappy. That's, that seems method, right? So, if I find myself thinking a lot, and I say, oh, stop thinking, that's not doing happiness. That's doing more anger, or aversion, or self-criticism, or whatever. Or if I say to myself, oh, I don't know how to meditate, I'm hopeless, then that's doing self-doubt. I'm not getting anywhere that's doing self-doubt, and that's not doing happiness. How do you do happiness? How do you do right thought? Well, you can go to places in your mind which are more happy, like uh, gratitude. Or, you know what Thich Han does? In, in his, in his uh, meditation instruction, he says, smile. <laughs> Try it. It actually works. You feel it in the heart. And then again, you think, still, oh, this is silly. So we all be <laughs> But actually, you can feel it in the heart. You can actually feel it in your heart. So, question is, how do you do happy? Mm-hmm. Now, this is not, you know, it's it sounds kind of polyandrish. Is that is that polyan polyanish polyanish kind of? But you know, seriously, uh, I think we know how to do misery very good. <laughs> Probably very expert at that. But actually. To see the mind moving with thought and energy, energy can oh life is heavy. But just like just like now, walking out into the snow, and oh, you know this kind of poor me, <laughs> old man kind of whimpering. Oh, what are you doing? And then ah, oh, snow feels this way. That's doing happy. Cold feels this way. That's doing happy to me. It seems quite pleasant walking out there. So happy. And physically too, like like you look at the contractions of your body, the the, the you know when, when 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 the mind is very very angry or, or frightened or, or worried or um, or critical and, and re, uh, resentful, the body's feeling all that. The body feels that. And when the body and when you're loving and you're grateful and you're caring. Uh, and, and, and you're interested, and you're looking around, the body feels that too. So body awareness. So what is doing happy in terms of body awareness? What might that be? What might that be? Well, you have to get to know your body, don't you? You have to get to start to connect the, the moods of the mind and the bodily postures. How does that work? How does that work? We can see that very obviously with dullness. Right? So you can leaning over towards the floor and you pick up, you open your shoulders, you open your hara, take a few deep breaths, oh, happy. 
much nicer than the kind of sinking into the posture and the mind just getting caught in sort of um, low-level rubbish. <laughs> we all do that. And then, and then you just, body, no, how does the body, I'm, I'm embodied, I'm embodied being, what does that feel like? Uh, when you work, uh, when you work, like if you just not aware of the body, you strain a muscle, or, or like actually working with the body, not just being in thought all the time. So, so then, you start to maybe see that the, these five factors aren't maybe just about the meditation cushion and absorbing into some, some kind of object or, or some kind of objective experience called jhana. Because that doesn't make sense to me. Because if you, if you, if you, it seems to me we're developing the mind. We're not developing objective experiences. So all of this, you know, like, what is doing happiness ultimately? Isn't that the third noble truth? Well, you're letting go of craving. That, that to me seems like doing happiness. Because when you let go of craving, and then you say, oh, it's, it's all right. This is all right. It's like this. That's happy. Third noble truth. Abandonment craving, right? Isn't that the ultimate kind of happiness when you are just okay with the way things are? It's like this. Which isn't a kind of a call to complacency or fatalism. Or, you know, it's not that. It's actually a mind quite appreciative and open. Beauty. And beauty makes us happy. Right? You see a beautiful sunset or, or an interesting configuration of cloud or... or on a January night, you look out at the stars and a sense of awe. So, how would that be in your meditation? How would you introduce that into your meditation? That's happy, isn't it? Beauty, aesthetic beauty, or whatever, whatever way you appreciate that. How would you? How would you? Is there a way to 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 use that? Those those, and introduce it into the attitudes you bring to meditation. That seems like that would be doing happy. You tell some jokes, I suppose. <laughs> That's quite good, actually. When you're getting too serious about yourself, a few jokes is good. Just lighten up a bit, whatever your personality. But then, then you see that if you think about it this way, then it's something that you can do all the time, isn't it? Whether you're working, or whether you're meditating, or you're having a meal. So I, I do find just that, that simple change of phrasing from meditating on the breath and meditating with the breath to me creates a much more kind of universal possibility of what mindfulness is or awareness is or the awake mind. So happiness, it seems to me the meditation has to be um, aspiring to the unconditioned, to nibbana, to, to liberation, to the divine, if you will, whatever way you call that. And, and, and and that the gateway for that is when cravings let go of, isn't it? And you abandon craving. Why is that? Why is that true? Well, because when you abandon craving, your attention is no longer pulled by objects. It is no longer seeking objects. It is no longer rejecting objects. And the objective world is not, it's conditioned. The unconditioned cannot be an objective experience because it's coming and going, coming and going. So the very fact of abandoning craving puts you in a place of availability. You're now available for the divine, for freedom, for peace, whatever, whatever way you like to call that. But if, if, and that's making happy, isn't it? Seems to be. 
so, so from my sense of it, that that the the samasamadhi must be in line with the ideas of the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, the deathless, non-becoming, non-resistance, non-holding. So if and that's about the mind, not about an objective experience. So if I if I absorb into some kind of experience and that's constructed, then doesn't that kind of take me away from the unconstructed, the unconditioned? Whereas if I can see that within the flow of the constructive life, of, of the, the flow of, of the, of the uh, sankaras, whatever we want to call it, the flow of the psychophysical process, in, within that flow there is consciousness, there is presence, and there is something which is not dependent on that. So we talk about dependent origination. Why do we talk about that? So that we incline towards that which is not dependent, the unconditioned. Right? So we see, oh yes, yeah, so so feeling is dependently originated, don't grasp it. Emotion, history, body, relationships, weather. These are dependently originated. What is not dependently originated? So what is a sankata or what is unconditioned? And and it seems to me that the that samasamadhi must be inclining us towards that rather to some some objective experience. It's doable. It's very doable all the time. Very, 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 very doable. The other the other where you are asked to, to get this some 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 kind of uh, incredible experience, well what happens is most people don't do that. A few people do and become conceited. That's very common, and tell you that this is how you do it. And, and then I've seen people get quite uh, feel quite guilty or, or inadequate because of that. And what is that? Is that making happy? So you set up a paradigm which maybe you know isn't achievable. Then you, you're told, look, you have to get that. Then you buy into that, and then you you know. You try like heck to, to get there, can't get there, I can't meditate. But isn't that maybe because the paradigm that's been set up is actually maybe faulty for you, maybe for someone else it works. So is that is that gonna is that gonna make you is that gonna be making happy? But this other way, it doesn't really matter. It, it, you know, you're not looking for some experience someone else has described for you, you're looking at your experience, how you're doing. Uh, and how to how to manage it in a way that brings composure, calm, happiness, and well-being. Right? So then you're not dependent on another person's opinion of how, whether or not you have this state, or 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 whatever it might be. And and, and for me, the you know, Theravada Buddhism is is a reflective teaching. It's not a belief teaching. You have to like the teachings that work are the teachings you can actually. Bring into your own consciousness, into your own mind, and think, yeah, I can work with that idea. Yeah, yeah, that's that's helpful. Yeah, and oh, I, I see what he means. But something that you have to achieve over there that you can't reflect on, how can that be dharma? And you have to believe a teacher or someone else, and 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 they they accredit you with that experience. You know, I, I kind of, that doesn't feel comfortable to me. That kind of thing. So there's a kind of self-sufficiency in our in our life, in our reflection. 
which doesn't mean that don't, people don't have you know fabulous meditation experiences and, and 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 so on and so forth that can happen. But how are these terms actually useful in in, in ordinary life, our life now? And 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 you could say dismiss it, or oh, that's just mundane. But is it? Is it really mundane, or or is it actually in line with that, with the realization of nibbana? All right, we'll leave that for your reflection. Antamayang dhamma sarukarang dhamma se sadhu sadhu.